We thank you for your presence. Even if we don't see you. Even if we don't recognize you. May you just anoint our time this morning. Just as you did with that song. And we all said, Amen. Well, everyone, uh, we're in the middle of a study on the book of Ecclesiastes. But first, on this post-4th of July Sunday morning, let's see them, all ten of them. Everybody got them? Well, I'm looking around for white bandages, eye patches. Okay, we're good. We'll all carry on. All right, that's good. Um, Ecclesiastes, and today it gets really thick. Um, because Ecclesiastes is a very difficult book to understand because it's talking about wisdom, and wisdom is difficult to understand. And so we're going to dive into this thing. And today, on installment number two here out of five, we're talking about crisis and pain. Crisis and pain. Yay, crisis and pain. So let's dive in on this thing. Uh, So I, I want to demonstrate then... This morning, out of this passage, uh, so if you have your Bible, by the way, if you have an app, a Bible app or whatever, you just look it up online, we're in Ecclesiastes, uh, chapters 4 through 8 is, by the way, is what I'm going to suggest you read this week, but we're in chapter 7, Ecclesiastes 7 is verse 1, Ecclesiastes 7, if you have your Bible with you. If you don't, it'll be on the screen. Um, So what I want to demonstrate this Sunday morning is the topsy-turvy, counterintuitive, understanding of wisdom. That true wisdom, biblical wisdom here, is very flip-flopped than what we think. It's very counterintuitive, and what you think is right is not, and it's, so it's just counter to what most of us think, and we're going to look at the scripture, and you'll see this sort of thing coming out of Ecclesiastes. So that bad can actually be good. That's why we're going to talk about crisis and pain and the role of it in our spiritual formation. So here we are, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. You're starting to see the flip-flop, topsy-turvy thing here. Death, better than birth. Okay. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Once again, topsy-turvy. For this is the end of everyone, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of countenance, the heart is made glad. Oh, really? I didn't know that. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. Okay. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. And we went over in detail last week this, under, this understanding, this archaic word vanity, as opposed to other translations that will say meaningless. And what Solomon is saying is life is not meaningless, it's vain. In other words, everything at the end of your life gets pushed to the curb, <clears throat> right? It all goes to the curb. That's what we mean by vanity. It, it, it has no eternity to it, all of life, except for life itself, of course. So podcast last week vanity where was i let's see vanity, vanity, vanity. there we are verse seven surely oppression makes the wise foolish and a bribe corrupts the heart better is the end of a thing than its beginning the patient in spirit are better than the proud in spirit do not be quick to anger for anger lodges in the bosom of fools 
In other words, they dwell on it. They nurture their anger, and it becomes their friend. Yeah. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For it is not the wisdom... For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is as as good as an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to the one who possesses it. It's getting kind of thick here, isn't it? Consider the work of God, verse 13. Consider the work of God who can make make straight, uh, sorry, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider or think. God has made the one as well as the other so that mortals may not find out anything that will come after them. In my vain life, Solomon says, I have seen everything. There are righteous people who perish in their righteousness and there are wicked people who prolong their life in their evil doing. And we've all seen this, right? The last verse there, Solomon saying, I've seen wicked people never get caught and they live high on the hog their whole life. And I've seen really good people. Well, Billy Joel said it, only the good die young. You know, and how does that happen? That's not fair. King Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, states that his lavish, wealthy, have-it-all life where he's possessed many, many things, did not turn out the way he thought it would. In the, around the year 931 uh, B.C., in other words, 3,000 years ago, thereabouts, Solomon was the richest man in all of the Middle Eastern uh, nations and countries in the known world at that time. He was it. He was the top dog. And he says, things do not turn out the way it's supposed to. Things turn out contrary to our common wisdom that says righteousness and good are the best. As a matter of fact, Solomon says in his wisdom, he says, sometimes the bad stuff is actually the good stuff. And the good stuff ends up being bad. It's all topsy-turvy. Now, in order to punch all this home, and because I talked to Luke um, on the arts here, and I said, Luke, this service, because it's kind of thick, it lacks some fun. And so... For whatever frivolous, silly July kind of reason, we decided to throw some fun in here. And so we're going to take our fun from the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Because around here, the pastors love this movie, and most everybody in the whole world loves this movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? A Coen Brothers movie, Joel and Ethan Coen. If, if you're familiar with their stuff, then we all know you love it, even though it makes absolutely no sense. And this is one of those movies as well. So, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The film is so wise... And that's why it fits with Ecclesiastes. Oh, Brother Arthur, are so wise that it's used in my high school son's English class because it teaches, in very, very loose fashion, Homer's The Odyssey, okay? Which is really a hero's journey about, you know, um, this guy who doesn't know anything, has to go through his long trial, and then he ends up a hero in the end. Okay, got it. Pretty classic. It's Star Wars. Um, so it follows this Greek classic, The Odyssey, and it's funny, and it's quirky, it's very Coen Brothers, and you, if you want something to do during July, then just watch all the Coen Brothers movies, and you'll go like, what? So at the end of them, because that's just what they do, and besides, you'll hear a lot of cuss words. Uh, so, but, just to keep the, di- the digression here going, um, it has given us some of the best soundtrack music ever, even inside the church, 
right? Because the soundtrack was made by T-Bone Burnett, and if you don't know that name, well, then you're just not there, because T-Bone Burnett is all that, Mr. Like Two Instruments and can create a whole album, kind of cool guy. Allison Krauss, there's a name you know, right? Toured with Jimmy, uh, uh, Robert Plant, you know, from Leslie, okay, it's my era. Uh, you know, Allison Krauss, Down to the River of the Prey, Ralph Stanley, we don't know the name, but he sang acapella, Oh Death. I'm going to throw that at you later on in the month. You're going to see it. We're just not done with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So, you know, just get used to the movie. But it's a certified eight-time platinum Grammy Award album of the year. This is 2003. Single of the year at the Country Music Awards. Two International Bluegrass Music Awards, you know, with Alison Krauss's performance of I'll Fly Away. And um, why the entire world finds Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Brilliant and wise and next to the mind of God Almighty himself. We now are about to understand why because we're going to show you one of the most profound clips of the entire film absolutely for hardly any reason let's roll it luke you got some light fingers everett gopher you stole from my kin who was fixing to betray us you didn't know that at the time so i borrowed it till i did know that don't make no sense pete it's a fool who looks for logic in the chambers of the human heart Okay, all right, there we have it. That's the way the whole movie goes. So enjoy that. That don't make no sense. I've been sorry, I went around saying that in my house for so long that the whole family kind of disowned me. So, um, all right, so because when we read Ecclesiastes, a lot of it we want to say, that don't make no sense. And right here, you got it going on, right? Consider the passage. Solomon says, what is wise and good? So here's what's wise and good. A good name, that's what's good, that's wise. The day of your death, that's what's good, that's what's wise. House of mourning, sadness, that's good, Solomon says. Sorrow, rebuke, those are good. The end of a thing, not new and improved. Patience, okay, we knew that one, patience is good. Consider what Solomon says is not good. I can tell, you guys got furrowed brows out there, you're out there going like, that don't make no sense. Uh, What's not good? Your birth. <laughs> Boy, it's reaching the bottom down there. Like, well, that just takes care of the whole thing. That's not good. You got born. Okay. Feasting's not good. Laughter and mirth are not good. So I guess I'm kind of messing up here. Song and frivolity are not good. Easy money, even inheritance money, is not good. You know Sting from the police? He's not giving his kids any of his money because he knows it'll just ruin their life. So Sting gets it. If you don't like, oh, brother, where art thou? Then go to the police. Okay. Pride and anger. That's not good. We already knew that one too. And longing to make the good old days great again is not good. Okay. Why? Solomon answers this. This is why. This is why everything's topsy-turvy and flip-flopped. Solomon says down there in verse 13 and so forth. Consider the work of God. Who who can make the straight what who can make straight what he's made crooked? There's straight and there's crooked paths in life. And you can't change it. In the day of prosperity, he says, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, ponder it when you're hitting hard times. God has made one as well as the other. That is a loaded statement right there in the Bible. And I'm going to talk about it in a second. So that mortals may not find out anything that will come after them. 
God has made both the adversity and the joy. Oh, really? Because, you know, if God holds both joy and sorrow in his hand, over the decades and the degrees that I have and everything, we in the church get really, really worked up about making sure that we don't teach you guys that God is the author of evil because God's not the author of evil. It says so in all of our creeds and all those thick books sitting on my shelves says God's not the author of evil. And God's good. God is good. God doesn't cause evil. God doesn't do anything bad to you, right? I preached it for decades and decades, and you're not going to hear me say hardly anything different than it. But here in Ecclesiastes... God somehow is involved with both the straight and the crooked in this topsy-turvy book of wisdom. Somehow, somehow, God has made one as well as the other. Oh, well, this is really upsetting, you know, if you've been raised in the church. Because scholars and theologians attempt to distance God from calamity. And the result is a... In modern day, and this gets thick here, just this about the deepest moment here. This gets really bad because we don't know what to do with evil. We have no answer for it. We have no solution for it. We don't know how to be wise about it. Instead, it's not supposed to exist. And if you really want to be a nerd on this whole thing and you want to go to Wikipedia, then start thumbing this one in. The Lisbon earthquake of 1755. Lisbon, like Lisbon, Portugal. You look this up, go read it later, not now because you'll be there all day. Lisbon earthquake, 1755, was a turning point in modern enlightenment because what happened at that point was the big split between evil and good and no one could understand why this earthquake happened if God is good. And so they just lopped off all the evil from the concept of God. It's a big deal. Things weren't always this way, you know, philosophically speaking. Okay, back on. Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Job, the Psalms, we find, we find these, these things, questionable passages, questionable passages, because the work of God makes paths straight and crooked. God does both. What does this mean? It means wisdom is difficult to understand that it don't make no sense. It is hard. Because you're sitting out there saying like, now wait a second, Pastor. You just told me, is God the author of evil? I'm never going to say that. And Scripture doesn't say that. But Ecclesiastes kind of has this sort of straight and crooked thing going on. And somehow God's involved with both. You know what we need? You know what you need to make sense of all this? You know what makes sense of all this sort of gray and all this sort of like, now wait a second, the topsy-turvy, the, the bad's good and the good's bad. You know what you need? A crisis. <laughs> oh yes, we're just going to go there. You need a crisis in your life to make sense of your life. Crisis is a necessary component to living. Now in America, in our Western culture, all bad is really bad. And we don't do bad in our culture. Everything's supposed to be happy, shiny, and getting better and better. You're not supposed to be sick. You're not supposed to have any mental problems. You're not supposed to have any issues. It's all supposed to be good, new and improved, happy, shiny. And you can pick up the Bible and say, where's it say that? 
Well, it sure doesn't say in Ecclesiastes. You need a crisis. Crisis begins to make sense of life. Because, folks, not all of life is happy and shiny, is it? Now, by the way, if life right now is, like, really, really bad, this is going to be really hard to hear. This teaching is if everything's just kind of, like, cool. And you log it away. Right? That's why it's a teaching. Right? It's not therapy. So, what we need is another film clip because this ain't making no sense. So, let's have another Luke. Let's roll number two. constant sorrows oh yeah that won an award too right that's the song we can all identify i mean country music by the way is entirely built off this entire theme you know my dog left me and my pickup truck broke down and i went into a lake so i mean the whole thing is based on if you don't have any sorrow and tragedy you don't have country music old-timey music as they call it in here right so this is what we got going on you jump ahead now from solomon in 930 bc jump ahead to just after jesus to the church's time, to the book of James, the New Testament, okay? So now it's about 50 A.D., uh, 60 A.D., actually. And we get to the very beginning of the book of James. And by the way, in the New Testament, the book of James is a New Testament version of the old wisdom literature of the Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, okay? So just so you know that, as a matter of fact, James, even in the book, of James quotes the book of Job and a lot of the thoughts. So here's how it starts out, all right? Starts out, book of James, chapter 1, verse 1. Oh, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. You face trials, consider it nothing but joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Does this sound like Ecclesiastes now at this point? Like, no, wait a second. You're telling me that suffering, I'm supposed to be happy. And there's something about things being complete and full and mature and all this stuff. Somehow I'm supposed to gain something from this. That's correct. James uses this word complete so that you may may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, chalk talk time, okay? Because... We see this word here in James, complete, right? Complete. All right, here's complete. And we tend to think of the word complete, thank you so much. We tend to think of the word complete as done or finished. Like things have come to an end when we hear this word complete. This is the way we, you know, this is all Merriam-Webster moment here, right? That's what we tend to think of. Now, I'm going to propose, and this isn't, you know, 100% black and white. 
But I'm going to propose that what we tend to think of when we hear the word complete here in this passage is we tend to think in terms of a quantity, quantitative understanding of complete. Fix that. I'm still fixing that. Quantitative, right? There's a quantity that says time has passed, some sort of mileage has passed, or whatever, and that you've come to the full or done, you know, time has come to an end, right? The task is finished, and it's complete. So we, we think of this as complete as being something is satisfied. Now, complete means 100% done, our modern idea. But in the original sort of language, okay, in the Greek, and I'm going to go in the Greek here on you for the moment, um, because I think there's something in the, actually in the Greek word that you can understand on this sort of thing if you don't know Greek. What you're going to see then is the word in the Greek is teleos. And this is actually a word that gets used in places. It's not just in Greek. So we actually have this in our vocabulary. But the word in the Greek is teleos. There it is. Teleos. Can you see this word like used as a prefix or the first half of a word like in telescope and so forth, something really far away comes to be present, you know, really up close, right? Telescope, right? And we have other things where there's telephone, somebody's real far away, you call them, you know, and this sort of thing. So we can see this. This, is, this word is what you find in that passage right here. And it gets translated as complete, and then we understand it as quantitative. But here's the deal. Instead of this teleos being idea of complete, Instead, we should think of it really in the Bible as, if I could draw an arrow, as integrity. I don't mean that as a character quality. I mean integrity is that it has wholeness, that it works together. The system works. The economy works. It has integrity. It's, it's complete because it's a good system. It's a good machine. You tracking with me? Like, can you get this from complete? Like, it has integrity. You know, like, that website, it's got integrity. Meaning, not because it's morally in integrity. It means, like, it functions well. It, it works. I don't hit any dead ends or anything like that. It doesn't go, you know, the 404 error or something like that, right? The whole thing's happening for you. And so what we miss on this understanding when we're talking about Consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, you know, because you're, you know, because it's going to lead to completeness. What we need then is an idea of qualitative. Did I do it right, Ashley? Ashley's like, you misspelled this stuff. Close enough, right? Um, so, quantity versus quality. You tracking with me? Heavy Bible study time here, right? I told you it was a study during July on this book, and we're actually doing the hardcore work on a chalk talk. So you want this integrity. It has a qualitative meaning to it. So add that to the idea of quantity, like the deed is done, the thing is finished. Add to it that there's integrity to it. Now, apply that then to the soul and to the heart, and I believe you end up with the idea that you have emotional health. Crisis and sorrow are necessary for emotional health so that you, as a person, as a machine, so to speak, as a system, are complete, meaning you hold together. That's wisdom, that you hold together. It doesn't mean you have all the answers, 
it means that you can function. This idea of completeness. So I believe if a person is emotionally healthy, it means that they are complete or whole or intact. They have integrity of person. And I'm convinced that many of us are driven towards chaos and anxiety and crisis because we've split into two consciousness or centers of the person. And when I say driven by, I mean we unwittingly, unconsciously, artificially manufacture chaos in our own lives. This is what I've seen over my years, is that a lot of times people create their own chaos. They blame somebody else. They think it's their employer. They think it's a spouse or whatever it is. They think it's something else, but it's them. It is them who pull the pin on their own hand grenade and drop it at their feet and then wonder why they blew up. This is what I keep seeing. Do you have anybody in your life like this? And you kind of go, hey, don't ever learn. Hopefully there's not somebody sitting there next to you saying that about you, sitting next to you. I know someone who lost their job a while back, and out of bitterness and arrogance, they sued the company because the judge said the company did not have to pay them unemployment. So for 10 months, she was out of work. She didn't earn a dime. And all the while, she pursued a new court case, a new suit. And she was totally sure she was going to win. She pursued this suit out of a sense of righteousness and bitterness and anger and justice from her perspective. Now, in addition to pursuing the suit and not working during those 10 months, she began to borrow money from other people. She ran up all of her credit cards to a max because she was confident the whole time she was going to win her suit against her former employer. She did not win the suit. She did not get anything for her troubles. Now she was in debt. The settlement did not even, whatever little settlement she finally got in the thing, she didn't even pay her expenses. To this day, she is still angry. She never became fully employed again. And she holds this and nurtures this bitterness and this blame in her heart for years and years and years. She did not learn from the crisis. In my opinion, she did not become wise. She became, in a biblical sense, a fool. In the classic definition of a fool. And a fool is someone who does not learn the way life works. To be wise is to learn how life works. And if you want to learn how life works, sometimes things don't work out. So pay attention. Because paying attention to your crisis and being able to understand what's going on in the midst of your crisis and learn from it is what makes you a wise person. But if you don't, then you're a fool. And the Proverbs 26, 11 says, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool that returns to his folly. And I remember that because it's so graphic. Or as my mother used to say to me, you can open your mouth and be known a fool, or you can keep your mouth shut and let people wonder. And she took that straight from Proverbs. You can rub their nose in it and tell them no, but they can't help but return to their folly. Do you have anybody in your life like this? 
You got anybody in your life who keeps buying cars without a title? Over and over. Life has a destination, everyone, on this complete, this teleos. Life has a destination, and it is wisdom. The journey that you're on is a journey of wisdom. You're supposed to learn, really like Homer's The Odyssey. You're supposed to be gaining wisdom. You're supposed to become mature, not just repeat your same folly over and over and over. This is what we're after. Life is going somewhere. It has a purpose, and this is where God comes into the whole thing, where God holds both straight and crooked together, that it all belongs It's not as existentialist Bertrand Russell once said last century where he said, when you die, you rot, and you just join the big fertilizer plan out there, just the big recycling scheme. Because I'll tell you, in secular humanism these days, that is exactly the end of it. It would be eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die and you become fertilizer. Tell that to your kids as a bedtime story if you're a secularist. Good night, honey. Tomorrow maybe you'll be fertilizer. But that's exactly what's going on. It has no teleos. It has no completion. It has no wisdom. It's just living in the moment. A pointless existence capped off by the fertilizer plan. All right, because that's a thick comment. We need another Oh Brother, Where Art Thou clip at this moment just to break things up. So, roll number three, Luke. Mind if we join you, old timer? Jive me, my son. Jive. You work for the railroad, Grandpa? I work for no man. Got a name, do you? I have no name. Well, that right there may be the reason you've had difficulty finding gainful employment. You see, in the mart of competitive commerce... You seek a great fortune. You three who are now in change. You will find a fortune. Though it would not be the fortune you seek. But first... First you must travel... A long and difficult road. A road fraught with peril. Mm-hmm. And there you have it. The thesis of the movie, just in case the rest of it doesn't make any sense. You're on a long and perilous journey, heading off into the horizon. And you'll have to discover something that you did not intend to discover and go through things you never wished for. But in the end, maybe it turns out. If you think about it, the Bible itself begins with this idea of a crisis. What kind of a Bible story would it be if it just like if Adam and Anna had not sinned and all this? Like, that'd be a really short little book. About one page long. It says, and then they all lived happily ever after. But immediately what happens is humanity is thrown into the crisis of disobedience. They did drop the hand grenade at their own feet. And the rest of the book is actually this long journey. 
And you and I are on that same journey with the push cart. We humans are born into crisis. So pause for a moment. What is your crisis? What has been your crisis? Did you learn from it? What is your separation? Is part of your crisis dealing with the fact of saying that that is not right? The, the bad does not belong. That should have never happened to me. I should have never been abused. I should have never lost that job. Does that sound shocking to you? Because somehow it belongs in this economy, in this completeness. And that's a hard pill to swallow. Perhaps it just clarifies if we just talk about crisis in two categories. You got external crisis, you got internal crisis, but because I'm a bit of a nerd, I'm going to give you fancy words. Okay, I'm a lot of nerd, but so you can have two kinds of crisis. You can have what's called exogenous. You're like, really? Exogenous crisis? Or you can have endogenous crisis. All the medical people are saying, like, I don't know what you're talking about now. Exogenous crises are those that are external to you. Yes, you were abused. Yes, you were born into poverty. Things happened to you. They came from outside of you. Uh, you flunked out of high school because you didn't have any parental support. So you got in with the wrong crowd. You ended up in jail. And then you fell into somebody who matched your own low self-esteem that was pounded into you. And you fell into the hurricane. And they called it marriage. That's exogenous. That's outside of you. It quickly begins to move into the endogenous because you are a part of the system. The endogenous crisis is I like to just focus on the idea because I see it so prevalent and it's part of my studies is abandonment. You're abandoned as a child. And as a result, you learn to avoid deep intimacy with other human beings. You created a shell around yourself. Let no one in. And it's working for you perfectly except that you're alone. And you can't do anything about it. Or, if it gets pressed too far, you begin to overreact to the isolation and you begin to do this sort of thing. Stay away, come close. Stay away, come close. I need you so much. Ah! And you're freaked out. It becomes so overwhelming in the extreme case that you can't even think straight. There's a huge roar inside of your head. Or, your endogenous crisis may lead you to what therapists call a compensatory addiction, a compensating addiction. Alcohol, food, sex, you name it. We're very creative as human beings in finding compensatory addictions. The church, by the way, tends to favor food. Because for some reason you can't smoke or drink, at least at those other churches out there. And, uh, and in Colorado. But uh, anyway... Um, but in Christianity, in conservative Christianity, food's okay to have an addiction with. My counselor, Mike, he's real overweight. 
and he says, he's New York, he's Italian. And he said, every time I was a little kid and I was sad, all my aunts and my mother said, like, oh, you're sad. Here, have a bowl of pasta. Here, have a cookie. Here's some cake. So he began to associate feeling with food. Now, anytime he feels anything, food's the answer. You know, crisis, it can paralyze you, right? And it has the power to freeze us screaming out for something to change while at the same time screaming out, don't let anything change. And that's the problem. So we need something to push us off center. We need something to unstick us, get us unstuck. Something to disrupt the status quo, the, what, what's called the homeostasis. We need, and what the Bible calls, is repentance. You need to repent. And you're like, oh, great. Here comes the sin talk. I've got a sin problem. You're going to say my emotional, psychological issues are actually a sin issue. You're like, well, they could be. Or actually, your sin issues is what's kind of causing you to, you know, jack up your whole life. But let me throw you a different spin on this idea of repentance, okay? Once again, back to the chalk talk. So here we are. We're talking about repentance, And because, again, I'm going to throw a Greek word at you because I think you can break it down real quick and understand what's going on with it. Repentance is, in the Greek, this idea of metanoia. And if you've been around the church forever, you know this word metanoia because you've probably heard some preacher like me or a teacher talk about it. And this idea of metanoia, we were always taught in my conservative Southern Baptist upbringing, metanoia means you need to turn around. And that's what we understood repent or is missing the mark, which was what sin was and this sort of thing, right? But if you begin to break this word down, and I don't really necessarily recommend doing this as far as word like language studies go, but you see this word meta and noia. And meta we have in our language and it means through, right? Like metamorphosis, right? We're going to change. There's some moving through, some process. But what we may not see so well is this word noia, where we get our word knowledge. Like, you know, see the word, they they just don't have a K in Greek. (laughs) But we do. Probably borrowed from the Germans, I believe. So, noia. Through your thinking. Metanoia means move through your own thinking. You tracking with me? You've got to move your... As, as AA says, your best thinking got you here. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous says. Your best thinking got you here. Or, to use the business adage, your system is perfectly designed to produce the results you're currently getting. You have thought yourself into a corner. Nothing can break things up. You continue to do the same thing and expect different results. And don't we all call that insanity, don't we? You see what we do to ourselves, And then we wonder why our life doesn't change. And why we can't get out of whatever crisis or pain or whatever we're in. Whether it be exogenous or endogenous. We have to move through our thinking. And crisis is the catalyst that gets us out of our thinking. And that's why crisis is so painful. 
And for the spiritual person, if you pay attention to your crisis, this is your God moment. If you pay attention to your crisis, then God is there in the midst of it. The God you imagine before your crisis will never change your life. The God inside your head will never change your life. It is only the God beyond you, the one you cannot imagine, that one changes your life. The God that perhaps, just right out of Ecclesiastes, the God that holds together both the straight and the crooked, the good, the evil, isn't it? That might be it. When Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, so your sins may be forgiven, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He was talking to a bunch of Jews just 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. They had to get over the idea that dead men don't rise and that the Jews were going to become a great nation and many, many other things. They had to move through their thinking. Your garbage is your way back to the garden. Your garbage is your way back to the garden. You have to pay attention to this stuff. Is it fun? No. Go back to your long list there in Ecclesiastes 7 and look at all this stuff in light of crisis of what has to change and so forth. Look at what he says, what Solomon says is actually the good stuff instead of what we all assume is the, the good stuff. I'll tell you a crisis that changed the world, and that was Jesus in the garden that night after the Last Supper, where he goes a little further and he falls on his face and on his knees and he prays to his father. He says, Father, if there's any way that this cup could pass for me, and he says, not my will, but your will. Father, not my will, but your will. And in the midst of a crisis, your prayer is this, the same as Jesus, not your will. I mean, not my will, but your will. That's the only prayer you got in a crisis. Not my will, but your will. And you will have to drink the cup. This is not true. This is the way it goes, everyone. That crisis began with this. Servers, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, that's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after, also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then Jesus goes out into the garden. And praise that prayer. Not my will, but yours. Would you stand with me, please, and pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, if you so believe it. Join me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And therefore, everyone, we proclaim the mystery of faith, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Therefore, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink. Come forward whenever you're ready and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the chalice. And you may come with all of your questions. Fully understanding that nothing necessarily gets solved. Can you embrace that mystery? Then come. Let's end with the Celtic blessing. All right, everyone join me. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you. Wherever he may send you, may he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.